Well, I was thinking this morning as I brought the new banners in that have scenes of snow on them that it would probably snow, and I'm told that is going on right now. So it's supposed to stop about 1230, so you should be fine, but please be careful uh, when you leave. And uh, anyways, if you would turn to Luke chapter 2. We are near the end of the chapter, verses 39 to 52. Is we're going through this uh, um, a year with the Savior called Walking with Jesus, and primarily Matthew and Luke. Um, and so we've sort of been going back and forth as we follow the life of Jesus chronologically. This week, Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. And uh, so I talked to the kids about forgetting. It is appropriate for this passage as well. Let's turn to this and give our full attention as it's the word of God. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to the Gospel of Luke this morning to experience this epic drama of Jesus together. Help us to learn more about your Son, and use this gospel to cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, guard us against ignoring this passage because nothing dramatic happens. But just as Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, so this passage is meant for our instruction, for our training, for our edification, for our correction, for building us up in truth and righteousness. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to come to know Christ more. Help us to see wonderful things in your word, and as always, for this we need your grace. Help us to be amazed. Help us to wonder. And so we pray. Speak through these words of this gospel today, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus as we spend this year walking with him. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, you may have noticed we have a lot of younger children in our church, and those younger children 
are going to grow up. It happens, I promise. And with some regularity, I notice the concerns parents have for that time in the future when their younger children become teenagers. Those concerns can become words of fear, anxiety, helplessness, and in some cases, seeming hopelessness. But it doesn't have to be that way. Now, having raised five children through those teenage years, uh, with them all for better or for worse, uh, surviving into adulthood, I feel semi-qualified to talk about this. But first, let me answer a few questions. Will there be times when they drive you absolutely nuts? Yes. Will there be times when you don't understand anything they say? Yes. Will there be times when you wonder what you're going to do? Yes. But then again, they're asking all the same questions about you, and they're coming up with the same answers. Will there be times when you marvel at the wisdom and depth they display that you have no idea where it came from? Yes. Will there be times when you look at them with great pride at what they're able to do? Yes. Will there be times when you panic because you think something bad has happened to them? Yes. Now, with that said... Those years were some of the most fun times we had as a family. And yes, there were uh, times when one or two of the kids went off the deep end and got into trouble, and usually there's no good explanation for it. Most of the parents I know have been good parents, and in almost every case, some of their kids have struggled and some haven't. Some of them struggled with school and career choices, and some didn't. Some of them struggle with continuing in the faith, and some haven't. And some did for a while, but don't anymore. And at the same time, there are those families where the kids have been amazingly good, while the parents weren't much to speak of. There's no good explanation for that either. Most of you aren't going to fall into either category of being the best parents or the worst parents. But know this, there is no such thing as perfect parents. You will have ups and downs and highs and lows and good days and bad. And what will make the difference for you will largely be two fundamental things. One, an attitude of unconditional love for children and parents that covers a multitude of sins. And two, faith in a sovereign God that understands what's going on far better than you do. So what does any of that have to do with today's passage? Well, Luke 2 Verses 39 to 52 is the only passage in the Bible where we get to see Jesus between the ages of 2 and 30. In this passage, he's 12 years old, on the verge of becoming a teenager, on the verge of being recognized as an adult in the eyes of the synagogue. He's within a year of being bar mitzvahed, although the ceremony then bears little resemblance to the ceremony of the same name today. Bar mitzvah literally means becoming a son of the commandments, a full-fledged member of that particular faith community. It's the Jewish equivalent of becoming a communicant member in our church. Now, to be fair, 
Adult responsibility came a lot earlier in the first century than it does today. Children grew up faster, socially if not physically, and they usually got married a lot earlier than they do today. So there's really no exact parallel with what we know of as the teenage years. But nonetheless, the similarities are still there, and there's a lot for us to learn from what the Bible has to say about children and parents. And so today, in this passage, we're going to see two parents who are trying to figure out their kid somewhat unsuccessfully. And we're also going to see a child beginning to exercise the independence that comes with that age. Pick up the story at the end of chapter 2, and we start with the discovery that Jesus is lost. We'll start with verses 41 to 45. I'll come back and pick up the other verses later. 41 to 45, Jesus is lost. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So Luke starts out by informing us every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when Jesus was 12, they attended the festival as usual. At three different places in the Old Testament, the requirements are given for all males 13 and up to attend Three festivals, Feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. There's no such requirements for women or children, but often families went together. So we can see that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, attending as usual, testifies to their devotion to God. And even though only Joseph was required to go, he took the whole family to the temple to worship God. Now, A lot can be said here about the spiritual responsibilities of fathers to their families. Although that's not the main point of the story, it's an easy application to make. Fathers are responsible for families. Parents are responsible for the spiritual education of their children. And even though Jesus was the Son of God, Joseph and Mary still faithfully carried out their responsibilities to teach Jesus about the temple and about worship, and about feast days, and about his pending responsibilities as an adult in the synagogue. Now, we refer to our children as covenant children, but we're often lax about teaching them what happens in this place. Do they know why they come here? Have you talked to them about what we do here, and why we do it, and what these things mean? Ask them about the words of the songs. What did they learn from the message or from children's church? Talk to them about what happens here. That's what would have happened at the temple during Passover. Huge crowds would have gathered in the temple at about three in the afternoon. They would sacrifice sheep as an offering to the Lord. We can guess, it doesn't specifically tell us here, but we can guess that Joseph took Jesus with him to observe the sacrifice as part of his training to become a full-fledged member in the synagogue. A full contingent of priests would be there to attend to the crowds at the temple. The gates of the temple court would close behind this vast group of worshipers. A ram's horn would sound, and Jesus would watch Joseph, along with hundreds of others, 
slaughter his family's lamb. And the priest, standing in two long rows, would catch the blood of the lamb in gold and silver basins and douse it against the base of the altar. And while this is going on, the Levites would sing the praise psalms over the noise of the crowd. Joseph would then dress his lamb and then sling the animal wrapped in its own skin over his shoulder and go home with Jesus. Once home, the lamb was roasted on a pomegranate spit and eaten after sundown by the whole family. The meal was eaten by candlelight, and they would follow the Passover service, which included several hand washings and prayers and singing psalms. And after the meal, a son, most likely Jesus was given this privilege as the oldest, would ask the father the ceremonial question, why is this night different from all other nights? And Joseph would respond with a moving review of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And from everything we know, Joseph and Mary took Jesus' spiritual training seriously. And we need to be doing the same for our children. Not just his parents, but as all the adults in the church, for all the children in the church. It's a community responsibility. So anyway, they worship during Passover, lasts for seven days, and they get ready to go home. But Jesus stays behind at the temple. We don't know why. It wasn't a sin issue on his part because the Bible says he never sinned. And most sins don't usually involve worshiping and learning about God more than required. I think he simply loved learning and talking about the Bible. But the Bible doesn't say why. So some of this is speculation. Now, if he is starting to understand his own future role as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, then this Passover ceremony would be an awesome revelation for him. As Jesus is growing to understand his own person and work, I think he would have wanted to learn as much as possible about it. Remember, 1 Corinthians 5-7 tells us that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. He's at Passover now, learning just what that sacrifice means. And he wants to learn as much as he can, so he stays at the temple. Now, this is one of those dreaded teenager moments for Mary and Joseph. Their son is missing, and they had to find him. So they return to Jerusalem looking for him. Now, if you have ever lost a child at the shopping mall or at a ballpark or wherever, you know the kind of fear that can overtake you. Your heart starts beating faster and faster amid the frantic searching. You call out their name louder and louder. You hope for the best, but fear the worst. For some reason, most parents go through this at least once. And sometimes you've just forgotten them. And you, like them, you don't realize until some time later. I remember once we were at our, our first church and uh, we got home after Sunday and started getting lunch together, and everybody's getting changed and running around. The kids were little, and I got a phone call from one of the elders, and he said, did you forget something? So I'm looking around. It's like, where's Dan? And he was like, he's here sitting next to me. So I had to go back and get him, and uh, he was fine. But it happened to all of us. 
I've had more one occasion where I've been the one making that phone call to one of you uh, with one of your children still here. Often happens if you come in two cars. You know, somebody comes early because of setup or something, and they all think, well, he's in the other car with the other parent or something like that, and he's sitting here. So some of you have gotten that call. Um, happens to all of us, and apparently it happened to Mary and Joseph as well. And uh, nobody likes it when it happens, and I don't think they did either. So they spent a day leaving Jerusalem. They discovered Jesus missing, spend another day returning to Jerusalem, and that's where we pick up the story, verse 46, with Jesus being found. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Joseph and Mary get back to Jerusalem. They make their way to the temple. And there they find their 12-year-old smack in the middle of a group of teachers. Surprisingly or not, he's asking them insightful questions. He understands the religious dialogue. He's giving brilliant answers to their questions. Now, we're usually not surprised to read that because we think, well... He's God. He ought to have good answers. But remember, he's 12, and he was fully human as well. So this is still a pretty amazing scene. And I couldn't help but wonder how many of those teachers are still around in 20 years when he returns to Jerusalem to challenge them. Who knows? One of those questions you'll have to ask when you get there. Anyway, Jesus is found at the temple talking about spiritual things with spiritual teachers. This has something to say about the excellent spiritual training he was getting at home. But Mary and Joseph aren't thinking about that right now. Starting in verse 48, we see a fairly typical response. Verses 48 to 51, and Mary and Joseph's response. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son... Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And when he went down, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Two immediate responses to this situation. One, you're tremendously relieved that nothing has happened to your kid. And two, you want to make sure that it is not going to happen again. And I think Mary and Joseph are like most other parents here. The Bible says they didn't know what to think. And Jesus responds with this rather gentle question, why did you need to search? You should have known I'd be in my father's house. These are the earliest recorded words of Jesus. You should have known that I would be in my father's house. He calls the temple my father's house. And in so doing, he is asserting that he has a unique relationship with God. We find referring to God as father common in our usage and in the uh, New Testament. But there's no such usage in the Old Testament. No one ever called God my father. The Jews would refer to God as our Father in heaven in reference to the people of Israel. But only 14 times in all of the Old Testament. And never as my Father. 
Certainly not as an individual. It just doesn't happen. So this is shocking language for that time, especially coming from a 12-year-old. But it sets a pattern for Jesus' life. It's how he refers to God throughout his life. In all his prayers, he addresses God as Father. The Gospels record him using Father more than 60 times in reference to his relationship with God. This is a huge moment for Jesus. 18 years before he begins his public ministry. But there's little doubt that he knows who he is. And Luke wants us to understand there's never any question. Jesus is the Son of God. And the passage finishes with one significant verse that I think demonstrates the results of this kind of a relationship. I'm going to go back and pick up verses 39 and 40 and then end with verse 52. It says, When they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own form of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. That's how this passage starts. And it ends with, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This idea of being filled with wisdom and increasing in wisdom are the bookends for this passage. And we see here Jesus actually grew in four ways. And if you really want to make New Year's resolutions, which I'm not a big fan of, um, these are actually four good categories to choose. First, he grew physically and mentally, it says, in wisdom and in stature. Twice we're told of his wisdom. Verse 40, filled with wisdom. Verse 52, he increased in wisdom. And so Jesus' entire life, between the ages of 2 and 30, are summarized by being filled with an ever-increasing wisdom. Are we praying for that kind of wisdom to characterize our children and our grandchildren? Perhaps we should be. Second, he grew in his relationship with God and with others. Our text says he grew in favor with God and man. That word favor is literally grace. He grew in grace with God and with men, and his relationships were characterized by grace. Now, to draw some conclusions here, it seems to me that to have relationships that are characterized by grace, a few things have to happen. One, you have to know who you are. You have to know who you are. The Bible says, Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you have received Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have a relationship with him that is real and personal, the Bible says you have been adopted as one of his sons. And now you can call God Father. Now, to be honest, some people are put off by Paul's language here of adoption because they think it's gender insensitive. They argue it wouldn't be better to say that we become sons and daughters of God. Might be in today's world. But I think that misses the point. Tim Keller writes about a woman who helped him understand this. She was raised in a non-Western family from a very traditional culture. 
was only one son in the family, and it was understood in her culture that he would receive most of the family's provisions and honor. In essence, they said, he's the son, you're just a girl. And that's the way it was. And one day she was studying this passage on adoption from Galatians 4. And she suddenly realized that the apostle is making a revolutionary claim. Paul lived in a traditional culture just like she did. He was living in a place where daughters were second-class citizens. And when Paul said out of his own traditional culture that we are all sons in Christ, he is saying there are no second-class citizens in God's family. When you give your life to Christ and become a Christian, you receive all the benefits a son enjoys in a traditional culture. For her, that was a radical paradigm shift. That she as a woman would get all the benefits of a firstborn son. Not only was she no longer excluded, but Christ treats her as an equal. Now, as a white male, I've not been excluded like that. So I think it's a little harder for some of us to sort of see the sweetness of that welcome. I didn't recognize all the beauty of God's promise that raises us to the highest honor by adopting us as sons. Our adoption means we are loved like Christ is loved. We are honored like he is honored, every one of us, no matter what. And your circumstances can't hinder or threaten that promise. The more you live out who you are in Christ, the more you become like him. Paul's not promising you better life circumstances. It's promising you a better life. It's promising you a life of purity, a life of joy, a life of humility, a life of hope, a life that goes on forever. It's promising you a life that is a lot more like Christ. So first, you have to know who you are. But second, you have to know who Christ is. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was the sacrifice for us. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, rose again from the dead, giving us forgiveness for those sins, and lives and reigns at the right hand of God the Father. He is Savior and Lord, and that's why we gather every week to worship him. Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We don't submit to people because they're stronger than we are or smarter than we are or better looking than we are. We submit to one another because we belong to Christ. And it's the standard way that Christians relate to one another. We submit ourselves to serving other people for the advancement of the kingdom of God and the growth of the gospel in their life and the growth of grace in our life. And when we do that, we grow in favor with God and with men. Now, as I said earlier, I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. And every year, there is a bunch of articles that show up on all the online news sites about New Year's resolutions. And most of them say the same thing. The top three resolutions are to lose weight, stop smoking, and get out of debt. And of all the people who make them, only like 10% of the people actually make any progress. But one thing is glaringly uh, obvious from all these articles, that relationships with God and relationships with people don't show up on this list. 
until this year. For the first time, I've seen numerous mentions of going to church, of going back to church, of growing spiritually. It's as if people have finally realized that so much of our lives are built around relationships, including our relationship with God. Relationships are a huge issue with Jesus. Almost all the stories we read about him in the book of Luke deal with relationships. Jesus' relationships with other people, his family, his friends, his disciples, his opponents, and a whole bunch of people that he just happens to come across. And the stories that don't deal with how Jesus relates to people tend to deal with how Jesus relates to God. Since so many of our goals, our resolutions, our desires have nothing to do with relationships, many of us find us lonely and discontent. And that's because God has created us for a relationship with him and to relate to others. Luke wants us to see that. This story is not just about Jesus. It's also about us. It shows us how God relates to his people people who have a relationship with the God of the universe, people who are called to live a life that looks to God because he's poured out his grace on those of us who've recognized that Christianity is about having a relationship with Christ. And that's a relationship that we haven't earned and we don't deserve because that's the essence of grace, getting what you don't deserve. And Luke tells that story of how Jesus reveals that grace, died to provide it, rose again to bestow it, and will return to establish its presence over all creation. We have to show what that grace looks like, especially in our relationships. So if and when you have teenagers, you will learn it's a great training ground for grace. And all those who know that kind of grace said, amen, amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you have said by the prophet Isaiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And you promised to make us sons, to give us all the benefits of a firstborn son, signifying there are no second-class citizens in God's family. So help us all to see him and trust him and believe in him and love him and adore him and worship him just as he loved us and gave himself for us. We ask these things in the name of your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.